uh, I'll go. Return. Are you are you recording with uh, your thing as well with your little machine? Yes, I am. Okay, great. Okay, so this is uh, after a, a midsummer break. This is the Shir Ilunishmos Mefraim Shmo Ben Avram Maria Cohen Chaya Tova Bas Aliyazem Mendla Cohen on the book of Yechezkel. Uh, we seem to have a little bit of a smaller crowd today, but uh, hopefully it'll build up. We are uh, nice to see Nat Gordon there. Yeah, Scotty. Uh, yeah, must have had mixed feelings the other night when Scotland were playing uh, the State of Israel at football. I don't, I want, I don't know what you, you what, what was going on in your head. You, what was the you, score in the heady? It was the Scots won with the last kick of the game. Well, well, well. Yeah, it was. Uh, I don't know. Tisha B'Av for the for the Jews. I don't know what it was. Anyway, I, I didn't know what to do myself as an Englishman. Um, anyway, right. I'm going to mute everybody, and uh, we'll take it from there. Okay, so we're about to start. Okay, so since it's been a, a little bit of a time since we've had a share, I think it's been uh, the end of August. Um, just to bring you up to date, we're, we're really going to start with chapter three here, but. Um, I'm just going to backtrack a little bit to the end of chapter two and just give you a brief um, um, background of what we're talking about here. Um, at the end of chapter two, in chapter two, verses eight through till 11, um, Yechezkel was shown a Megillah. Yechezkel was shown a Megillah, which is, had various sides to it. And it contained uh, various elements of the Torah, the revealed Torah, and the hidden parts of the Torah, the Pshat, and the Remez, and the Drash, and the Sod, uh, the four elements of the Torah. Um, and in verse, in chapter two, verse eight, so he was told, and he was told to open his mouth and eat what God he's going to give to him. Now, Rashi, the, the implication is that he was told to eat the Megillah. So Rashi says there that the, the language there is metaphoric. There's obviously, uh, as far as Rashi's concerned and most of the other Mephorishim are concerned, there isn't actually a physical paper safer there that he's going to eat. It's just the contents of it. Or there is a, a safer there, but he's, he's being told to eat the contents or you know, digest the contents rather than actually physically eat something, you know, a, a, a document. Um, as Rashi says there, it doesn't literally mean that God is going to give Yechezkel something to eat. Rather, it means it li- listen and digest the message um, as if you were eating food hungrily. That's the way Rashi understands it. That was in verse chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Uh, and again there, uh, so the, the, the novi, the prophet, tells us that uh, Yechezkel was handed over a Megillah Sefer. Um, and here in chapter three, which is where we're going to start today, um, God is going to instruct Yechezkel again to eat it. Um, and according to the way that Rashi, as I've just explained to you, the Rambam, not surprisingly, who's very rational, and the Abarabanel, again, who's generally speaking very rational, the way they understand it, this is what's going to be here in chapter three is merely an allegory about digesting, digesting uh, the information contained in the Megillah, which uh, they believe is the whole Torah, the whole Torah as um, as it is divided into these four subsections of Pshat, which is the, the simple meaning, the Drush, which is interpretive meaning. I'm just giving you basic uh, uh, descriptions here. Uh, Remez, which are hints to secrets within the Torah and the Sod, or Sodot, which are the actual secrets that are contained in the Torah. So he's been, t- he's going to be told to digest it, it all so that it becomes a part of him. Um, so that he can completely and utterly transmit some of the, some parts of the message that is contained in this Megillah to the Jewish people who are with him in exile in Babylonia. Um, and again, regarding the Megillah itself, there's a difference of opinion, whether it's just an allegory, as we've just discussed, um, there are a few commentators that hold that this is not an allegory and that God is going to be actually instructing Yechezkel to physically swallow a real Megillah and digest it. 
the, rea- the reality is it doesn't really matter whether the, sc- the scroll is real uh, in terms of uh, the fact that he's going to eat it or it's just something allegorical uh, and he's just going to be digesting it. The reality doesn't make any difference. The, the, the actual facts are that he has to ingest this information in order to achieve the status that he is, that he's got, um, to pass on a particular message to the Jews. And as we know from the previous chapter, the message is very, very harsh. Um, uh, we're going to delve into this language of Achila, eating, um, which is mentioned five times in the first three verses of the, of chapter three, which is again, what we're going to be dealing with today. Um, mo- as again, most people view the language of eating a scroll as something uh, allegorical. Um, but uh, we do have many examples in uh, throughout the Tanakh of uh, prophets being asked to perform physical actions to accompany particular prophecies. Um, and uh, as I mentioned last time, and I'll mention it again here, the Ramchal himself um, in the Das Tavunos, in the Knowing Heart, depicts the importance of a prophet performing physical acts that accompany prophecy. Because sometimes a thing is not fully real until until it is expressed in the physical world. Um, and I gave you the analogy, if you want to remember to do something, so you can put a stone in your pocket to remind you to do X. You just put something in your pocket, and as you your hand touches it, it will remind you, oh yeah, I must do X, I must do this, I must do that. And the amazing thing is that when you put your hand in your pocket and touch the stone or you touch the thing that you put in your pocket, you're reminded. And you can use the same trick with the same stone multiple times uh, for multiple reminders, and it always works. Um, and as the Ramachal points out, this is a, a symptom that as long as the reminder is still only a mental reminder, it's not fully real yet. And in order for an action or even a prophecy uh, to become real, it has to be expressed in the physical world, which is why some prophecies are not just um, video messages or audio messages given to the prophets, but physical actions that they have to um, occur, uh, have to perform. Um, the Maral again uh, writes in in the Be'er Hagola in his Sefer the Be'er Hagola um, as follows. He says, know and understand this, for it is an amazing insight um, for a a heavenly decree often needs a sign below so that the good will come to pass and the decree will be fulfilled for the good. Therefore, it is fitting to create a sign, a physical sign or a simulation, um, as we find very often with the prophets. This is why we eat at the start of each year. Items that have a good sign so that the, the decree that emerges from Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur will emerge into reality and, and that the good decree will thereby be fulfilled, which is exactly what we do on Rosh Hashanah, right? We have these simonim on the first night of Rosh Hashanah. We eat the leeks, we eat the black-eyed peas, we eat the carrots, and we eat the fish head and all that type of stuff. This, says the maral, is not nichush, it's not um, sorcery. It's only preparation for the the fulfillment of the decree of good. This is what they meant when the Gemara says, that's the Gemara in uh, Horoyos, Simona Milsaheve. Signs are substantive. For it is substantive in this regard that via the sign, the decree will emerge into positive reality. Uh, So that is uh, uh, something of a support for the opinions here that... uh, the Megillah actually existed. It was actually a physical Megillah. Um, the Baal Shem Tov again quotes a posit from Shir Hashirim. Hishbati eschem benoti Yerushalayim. I beg you, O daughters of Yerushalayim, b'tzvoz or b'ayolos asoda, um, by the gazelles or the deer of the field, im to'iru v'im to'oru eso'ava asher techpots that you neither awaken nor arise the love while it is desirous, while it's wanted. And uh, this, this, this possum, the Baal Shem Tov explains that this possum, if you awaken your love for God, 
then ad put it into an object or a chayfetz, put it into reality, do a physical action to show your love for God, to do, to express your relationship with God, to express your connection to God. It's not real until you put it into physical action. Um, loving God, uh, while it's uh, a good inner experience, uh, that inner experience will eventually dissipate. But you, if you express that love by doing an action in the physical world, that action can, can never be uh, undone. Similarly, the Maral says, when you get up in the morning, you make the Birkas Torah before learning, uh, the, the blessing over the Torah before you start learning. But many uh, posts and many halachic authorities hold that if you're only going to think about Torah or go over a piece of Gomorrah in your mind, you don't make the bracha. But if you do a physical action, or you speak, you teach, or you write Torah, that's when you have to make a bracha, because then it's real. So essentially, what's coming up in chapter three here is God speaking to um, Yechezkel, and uh, he's got information that he wants him to digest. He wants him to give him information that he wants him to digest and divulge to the Jewish people in a particular format. And uh, whether it's whether the the action is physical or whether it's spiritual, in other words, he's digesting it in his mind or he's physically digesting it by eating it, really doesn't make that much difference to us. Um, so we're just going to follow both paths. But in fact, Yechezkel is commanded to physically eat the scroll and or in actuality, it was only an allegory. There was no real scroll. There was no actual eating because neither understanding or both understandings, neither of them will make a difference to our understanding of the message because the message and the prophecy um, are the important matters here. So that's basically the introduction into chapter three, which I gave you right at the end of last time share, which was again a month and a half ago. Um, so now we're ready to start uh, chapter two. We had a very, very brief discussion about the first three verses. And today we're really going to get uh, heavily involved in these first three verses. So, again, um, chapter three, verse one. God speaking to uh, Yechezkel. Bayomra Eli ben Odom. And uh, God said to me, Ben Odom, son of man. Again, this language of Ben Odom, because throughout the book, he, he really is the only prophet that is described this way. Uh, we've discussed this um, quite extensively in previous Shirim, exactly why he's called Ben Odom. Essentially, he is uh, Ben Odom. He is, well, let me I, I explained it in this way, but similarly to the fact that uh, Odom, Adam, the first man, was expelled from the Garden of Eden, which we saw in last week's parasha or the week before's parasha, um, Adam and Chava were expelled, exiled from the Garden of Eden. So the Jewish people are exiled, Yechezkel and the Jewish people are exiled from the land of Israel. So that could be a reason why he's called Ben Adam, because his path is similar to that of Adam, having been expelled from the land of Israel. In any event, by Omer Eli, he said to me, God said to me, Ben Adam, son of man, that which you find, eat. Eat this scroll. And when you've done that, then you can go and speak to the house of Israel. So again, you've got a double language in this verse. First of all, he says, And then he says, uh, So the language is a bit it's strange because there seems to be double expression. What you find, you should eat and eat the scroll. Um, so the assumption has to be that Yechez, that what, that what Yechezkel found must have been the scroll because that's what we are told in chapter two. And then God says, which is again, is obviously referring to the scroll. So why does God or according to Babanel, it's an angel speaking to uh, here. Why does he say, Echol Asamagila, eat the scroll? After all, the only thing that Yechezkel has found that's in front of him is the scroll. So that's a little bit strange. Um, but we'll, everything will become clear after we've done the first three verses. So, um, in verse two, the plot thickens a little bit. Let's see if Yechezkel does as he is told. Remember, in the first verse, he's told to eat something. He's told to eat the scroll. 
Um, so in verse two, it says, "For eftach sp, I opened my mouth, beachileni esa megillah hazos, and he fed me the scroll." So it seems very clear from the verse that Yechezkel didn't voluntarily eat anything. Uh, in, in verse one, he was commanded to eat the scroll. In verse two, we're told that he he uh, he failed. He didn't, he didn't eat it. It was fed to him. It was fed to him. So the Malbim, the Malbim gives us a reason why. It was impossible. The Malbim, again, is one of these commentators that believes that the, 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 the scroll here is allegorical. And the information that's being presented to, um, Yechezkel is in a prophetic trance. And he is being told to digest it. Um, but he can't do it. He's not capable of doing it. Right? Uh, the Malam says, He's unable to reach that level, to be able to digest all this mass of information himself. He can only do it with God's help. Like um, his intellect or his imagination won't doesn't allow him or won't allow him to uh, digest such a huge volume of information by himself and it has to be fed for him fed to him so of course the Malbim explanation fits in very well if we're dealing in, in, in allegorical terms here uh, there was no begilla there was no eating just the idea of absorbing information in a prophecy which very often requires assistance from god uh, we find that throughout the prophets that uh uh, it, 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 very often in terms of, um, in terms of prophecy, uh, some pro- prophecies are very straightforward, but some prophecies are extremely complex. And however great the prophet, the prophet needs guidance. So it would appear here that this is, um, um, uh, a situation where the, the information that's being passed over to him is extremely complex and he needs help to eat it. So God, so to speak, has helped him. Um, it was fed to me. Now, in verse three, um, we go back to we. we it becomes uh, even more problematic, or the plot deepens a little bit further, because by, again, God speaking, and He said to me, God said to me, or the angel according to the Bible now said to me again, Ben Adam, son of man, Feed your stomach, and fill your bowels as a megillah zos with this uh, megillah, with this document. Which I'm giving to you. So I ate, I ate it. But and it was in my mouth. Uh, it was as sweet as honey. So now we come full circle. We started off with chat verse one, where Yechezkel was commanded to eat it. He was unable to do so. So in verse two, um, he was force fed it or he was fed it. And now uh, it appears that he's eating it again. So um, it's, it all seems a little bit strange. Um, because now we, we see that God, uh, uh, Yechezkel saying that he actively ate it. So there seems to be a process going on here in the first three verses. Um, and on the surface of it, looking at it superficially, um, we can suggest that uh, as a first stage, this, this image, imagery uh, resembles what happens um, when a parent feeds a young child. So in verse one, if you think about a parent feeding, uh, feeding a small child, a baby, um, that uh, you can imagine a baby sitting on his high chair and a parent puts on uh, puts food on the baby's high chair and he says to him, that's what the language was in verse one. Look, he says, the, the parent, the mother, the father says, look, I brought you something nice to eat, eat it. Um, and of course, what generally happens is the baby ignores it. Um, and the, ba- the child, the parent gives the child another chance to eat voluntarily by pointing at it. And uh, maybe breaking up the food into smaller pieces to make it more appealing. So we have this language again in, in verse one. Just eat a bit. Just eat a bit of the Megillah. 
just eat a little bit. That, and the child just won't eat it. He just doesn't want to eat it. So then we move on to verse two. Uh, again, using the same analogy of a child on a, on a high chair, um, when the stubborn child still refuses to eat, so the parent has to act. Uh, he, wa- he waits for the child to open his mouth uh, slightly, to, to laugh or to dribble or to do whatever he does. Uh, the Pesach says in verse 2, I open my mouth. And then the Pesach says in verse 2, he fed me the Megillah. So the parent, in our case, God, uh, feeds the child, in this case, Yechezkel. That's exactly how it happens on the high chair, right? As soon as the child opens his mouth, uh, if he's refusing to eat, eat the food himself, so you put it in his mouth for him, and you, so to speak, assist him in his eating. And you, sl- you slowly put the food in his mouth piece by piece. Um, then, in verse 3, we see that once the parent has managed to get the food into the mouth of the child, he then has to encourage him to eat it, to swallow it. So he says to him, Swallow it, fill yourself up, it's yummy food. And, and once the food is in the child's mouth, uh, the child is forced to taste it because it's in his mouth already. And then all of a sudden, surprise, surprise, the child likes the taste and then voluntarily eats and swallows up all the rest. Hence the language in verse 3, when I tasted it, the baby, in this case, Yechezkel says, wow, I finally swallowed some of it. And surprise, surprise, mummy, God, was right. It tastes just like honey. Just It's really nice. It's really sweet. And then uh, that's how you cajole uh, a child to eat. So that's, so to speak, a, a superficial way of looking at these first three verses. Yechesel didn't really want to, didn't really want to uh, imbibe what was being fed to him. And he had to be cajoled into doing so like a child. And the reason for that, really, uh, if, if you remember uh, right at the end of chapter two, uh, the reason is because when originally he was shown the scroll at the end of chapter two, um, he knew what was on it. He, it contained kinim vahega vahi. It contained uh, bad news. It contained details of exile. It, it, it contained information about the future, the, the exile of the Jewish people in the future. It, it contained information about Sadiq Varala, why bad things happen, well, not why, but the fact that bad things are going to happen to good people and the fact that good things are going to happen to bad people. And that's why uh, it could be that Yechezka was very reluctant, very reticent to uh, imbibe or digest all the information. But eventually he, he did so. And we'll see why shortly. Uh, so that's that's one way of understanding um, this uh, very superficial way of understanding exactly what's going on here in these first three verses. Um, there are a couple of questions here, which uh, I'll just deal with quickly. Um, internalize, yes. He's been told to internalize, correct. What comes to my mind about eating the parchment is Moshe grinding the eagle and having... The Bene Yisrael drink it. Both instances are related to Avodah Zarah. Any parallels in a polar sense? I don't know. I'm not really sure. Um, I'm not really sure that if there's a parallel here to the Chet HaEgel. Um, really, uh, the punishment for the punishment for the um, the Chet the problem with the with the Chet is very very few people sin. Um, if you look, if you look very carefully at the text in Shemos in chapter 32, you'll, you, if you read it very carefully with Rashi and the Malbim, you'll realize that uh, very, very few people sin that. It, it was a philosophical crime rather than a, um, an actual, um, crime of a Vodazora. Uh, in fact, uh, if you, if you really examine the text very carefully, there was no Vodazora that took place at all apart from members of the Erevrad, apart from members of the uh, mixed multitude that were um, hanging out with the Jewish people at the time of the Eagle. In terms of the Jewish people themselves, none of them uh, worshipped the uh, the golden calf as an idol. It's quite clear from the text, actually. You don't really need Rashi. Um, but um, so I'm, I'm not really sure about that. 
um, to be honest. And if you look at if if you look at uh, the Chaito Egel, only three thousand people die, right? And all of them were members of the Arab Rav. So um, very few people uh, suffer from it. So the crime there was philosophical. The crime here, the reason why the Jews are going into exile. Uh, is because of 800 years of misdeeds by a, a very, very large amount and a very, very large percentage of the Jewish population over the last 800 years. We're talking about 800 years, 780 years since the exodus from Egypt. And during that period of time, uh, there's been millions of Jews that have misbehaved and misbehaved very badly, including not only about the Zora, uh, paganism, but Shvich uh, Domin has been murder. Uh, Gili Arroyos, there's been um, sexual impropriety. Uh, so I don't think the, the parallel to the um, the golden calf is is particularly sound. Um, we will come back to the, the sin of the golden calf a little bit later on. Not not today, not to, not next week, but uh, we will come back to that. Uh, if you remember, uh, one of the um, one of the highest, one of the um, one of the um, the uh, the angels that Yechezkel saw in chapter one had the feet of an eagle, had the feet of a golden of the of the calf. So we'll see that we'll see in chapter ten that um, uh, he wants that removed. And uh, we've talked about it in brief, but uh, again, I don't really see the parallel to the, the golden calf here. But now I just want to take it a little bit further, uh, get it a little bit deeper, and then we'll take it even a little bit, even even deeper than uh, we've taken it so far. Um, so l- let's just look at an alternative scenario or some alternative imagery here. Um, substitute the reluctant, stubborn child imagery with the reluctance, humble prophet. Uh, Yechezkel. Yechezkel does not want to get himself involved in the prophecy business. He's not like that. He's like Moshe Rabbeinu. He doesn't want to be involved. He's like Yeremia. Uh, God had to cajole uh, Moshe Rabbeinu. We know after the, uh, the, the story of the burning bush, um, Moshe Rabbeinu had to be cajoled. He had to be forced to go to Egypt. We know Yeremia had to be forced. And it seems to be, to here to be, there's a, a huge parallel, as we pointed out in earlier Shirim, between Yechezkel and Moshe Rabbeinu. They're very, very humble people which is another reason why he's called Ben Adam. He wants to remain anonymous, and God respects that. Um, He just doesn't want to get involved in the prophecy business. Um, Certainly not a prophecy business that involves delivering bad news to people. Um, And again, um, as I just mentioned, there's there's plenty of prophets throughout Tanakh that uh, have had this problem. Moshe, Yirmia, and the most famous of them, of course, is Yonah. Uh, Those that have learned Yonah with me, uh, know how reluctant Yonah was um, to the extent that he ran away. He just didn't want to be involved. He wanted to go. He wanted to go on a cruise somewhere. So all these reluctant prophets didn't want to eat. They didn't want to swallow what God wanted them to eat or what God wanted them to digest, and then go and do the business. Then go and do the prophet. Get into the prophecy business. But all in all cases. Eventually, after some type of forced coaxing by God, they eventually were persuaded or forced, whichever way you want to look at it, to do, to do the job that God had planned for them. And they all eventually did so willingly, uh, eventually. Yona really eventually. And that's the language here, uh, right at the end of verse 3. But Ochla, I ate it. And uh, to their surprise, very often, uh, to Moshe, to Yirmiya, uh, maybe a little bit less so to Yonah, uh, and certainly to Yechezkel, very often the job became very rewarding. They didn't want to do it. They weren't interested. I want to go home. Um, but uh, eventually, when, uh, w- when they were forced to take part in God's mission, so to speak, they found it a very rewarding um, uh, plan of life. And uh, in this scenario... Yechezkel is a re- re- reluctant prophet. He's a humble prophet. Um, as we discussed in the first three verses of chapter one, if you remember in the first three verses of chapter one, uh, we discussed this, um, this the nature of uh, Yechezkel. He says there, he says, hoyo, hoyo. I was just happened to be there. I just, you know, I... 
but he doesn't even introduce his name. He says, uh, I was one of the members of the exile, Al Kavara. I just happened to be walking by the river. And, uh, he, he's a very, he's, you know, he's not, he's not your run of the mill guy that's, uh, you know, that wants to come to Washington and be the uh, secretary of state. He's not interested in any of that. He wants just to, to have an easy life, not an easy life. He just wants to, you know, doesn't want to be in the public eye, but he's being forced to do so. So he's very much like Moshe, uh, much more like Moshe than uh, Yonah, as we'll discuss a bit later on. Um, by Yechezkel, and earlier on by Moshe Rabbeinu, it seemed that their humility held them back from eating or accepting or embracing God's mission. Um, and the, the real reason was because they felt unworthy uh, of God's trust. Um, and they felt unworthy of the mission. Uh, and similarly with Yermia as well. He also didn't want to get involved. Uh, but here he, he has to be forced, just like Moshe had to be forced, and just like Yermia had to be forced, and just like Yona. Now, Yona's a little bit different. Yona actually disagreed with the mission itself. Uh, those that have learned Yona, again, those that have learned Yona with me in great detail, uh, those that want access to it, there are 30 Shirim on the book of Yona. Um, Yonah actually disagreed with the mission itself and he had a, an argument with God his argument was was with God's rationale and God's re- approach to Din and Rachamim Yonah didn't believe in Rachamim Yonah didn't believe in the Midar God's, uh, God's propensity for mercy he believed if you did a sin you should be punished for it and um he was being sent on a mission of mercy. He's been sent on a mission of mercy to the people, the non-Jewish people of, of Nineveh. And so he didn't, he didn't believe for one second that they deserved it. So that's, that's the reason he didn't want to go on a mission. Um, so he's slightly different, but here we have a prophet being coaxed. Yechezkel, not because he disagrees with the mission. He just doesn't uh, think he's the right gut man for the job. Um, um, but eventually, when he's forced to eat it, in verse 3, he sees, he he realizes it's kedvash lamatok. He realizes that it's uh, like honey and uh, everything uh, everything is appropriate and uh, God's got the right guy and he's capable of doing it and he's happy to do so. So that, that, that that's the second way of really understanding these three verses. Um, now, we we can take it a little bit deeper than that. And this is the way um, some of the commentators understand it um, on a deeper level. Um, but the message, um, the message coming out of these three verses is very complex and not as straightforward as you might think it, it is. So if we go back to chapter three, verse one, we go back to verse one, uh, we start off. God says to him, what you've got in front of you, eat. And again, remember from chapter two, we discussed that the scroll contained all four, four elements of the Torah, the Peshat, the Drash, the Remez, and the Sod, including the prophecy that Yechezkel is going to deliver to the people now. So that not everything that is in the scroll is revealed or can be revealed to Yechezkel. So God tells Yechezkel here, eat, consume first that which you understand. Timtza, what that which you find easy to digest, that you can eat. The unfolded, so to speak, front part of the scroll, the bits you understand. Because the reality is that you don't have the ability to see the whole picture um, of what's going on in, in, so to speak, in the back office underneath the controls of the, uh, you know, the Ferrari or be behind uh, the uh, keyboard of a computer, you don't, you don't really know the mechanics, the dynamics of what's going on. But the bits you do understand, you know, the keyboard and uh, the dashboard and uh, the accelerator, all the bits that you can see that are easy to see and easy to understand and easy to rationalize. That, that which you that you understand and that which you can deal with, consume those first. Um, because again, the reality is that you don't have the ability to see the whole picture. 
and even Moshe Rabbeinu. No one is capable of understanding the whole Torah, and no one's under, understanding and got the ability to understand the depths of the Torah, not even Moshe. Um, and uh, no one is capable of rationalizing um, everything in the Torah. It's just not possible. You know, we've got plenty of mitzvahs that we just have got no understanding of why they're there. We just take it on trust that uh, they're there for a reason. The Poraduma, that's the idea of tzitzis, shatnes, and uh, everything, uh, you know, really, um, almost, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of uh, rules and regulations in the Torah that uh, if you think about a rational mind, so it's it's almost impossible to come to a conclusion of what they, why they're there. I mean, some of them are very straightforward. You can rationalize them as a human being because you've got the ability to discern. You've got the ability to know the difference between right and wrong. Again, going back to the parish of Beratius, um, when they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they had the ability to discern on a very simplistic level the difference between right and wrong. So you can understand a human being's got the ability to understand, do not steal, do not kill. Um, but uh, as I said, there are hundreds of laws in the Torah that don't seem to make any uh, logical sense to us, put, putting on to fill it. Um, Shatnas and uh, Porad, there's hundreds of them. So uh, the first thing that God says to him, He says, "Listen, whatever you can, you can. First thing to do is digest everything that you can understand." Then God says to him, God continues. He says, despite the fact that there's stuff in the scroll that makes no sense, that seems unpalatable to you, you have to absorb that as well. You have to take in the whole Megillah. You have to take in the whole Torah. Even if the stuff you don't understand, which really is the essence of Naseh and Ishma, right? The Jews, the Jewish people were on Mount Sinai. And they said, Naseh will do it. Right. Uh, only then did they say Nishma. We'll do it, and then we'll try and understand it. You know, you give us the rules, and we'll do them. I, we don't understand them. We'll try and work them out afterwards, uh, whether we're capable or not. Uh, but we'll keep it all. So there's a double message here. The the double message in the first verse here is Eisachet Timzayachol. First, absorb the information you can understand, the information you can rationalize, and then Echol Asamagilazov. Then, even the stuff that you can't rationalize, even the stuff you can't understand, uh, which uh, which uh, is going to be very dark, the message that he, he, he's not going to be able to understand is very dark messages. Um, it, because the, the, the bits that he's not going to be able to rationalize are all about prophecies of darkness, prophecies of, of destruction, prophecies of calamity and exile, which he's going to find difficult in rationalizing. But he's going to have to pass them on to the Jews as well, uh, to the Jewish people as well. So God is saying to Yechezkel here, look, you don't see the big picture here. This Torah scroll, this information, this body of information, some of it's hidden, some of it's uh, closed, some of it's rational, some of it seems to be irrational. It's all part of one, one computer program. It's all part of one plan. It's all part of one project. This scroll, this Torah here is huge. Some of what you consume, some of what you eat, some of what you digest, you'll understand. And the rest, you've got to eat, consume, digest it anyway. And rely on me, says God, that I know what I'm doing and that it all makes sense. Even the death, the destruction, the exile, that you've going to be, you're going to find very hard to stomach. You're going to find it very hard to digest. You're going to find it very hard to eat. It's all part of a greater plan that you can't possibly fathom. And uh, as uh, Shlomo Melech, this is something that Shlomo Melech um, makes the point of in Koheles, in, in the fifth chapter of Koheles, uh, in the first verse of uh, the fifth chapter, he says, Don't be rash with your mouth. Um, don't let your heart be hasty. To utter words before God. Because God is in heaven. And you are a physical being on the earth, right? You're just a temporary, transitory, physical being. God's eternal, lives in the spiritual world. Um, therefore, let your words be few. In other words, um, 
God, so to speak, is seeing the whole picture from heaven. When you have the total vista of vision from heaven, you can see how everything is connected. The, the Ramchal gives an analogy to a man standing on a pole in the middle of a in the middle of a maze. So the people walking around the maze, so they're getting lost. They're getting going round and round in circles. They can't find their way. And there's a guy standing on the mast, and he's looking down at the maze, and he can direct you which way to go. And um, sometimes you, you you say, what does this guy know, right? Uh, let him mind his own business. But if you say that, so you, you're condemning yourself to running, going around in circles the whole time. Um, if you listen to the man in, on the mast uh, who can see the whole picture from a higher vantage point and you take his advice, you'll get to the middle and you'll, you'll get to the uh, exit. If you don't take his advice, you can spend your whole life, so to speak, running around in circles and getting nothing done. So this is the point Shlomo Melech making here. And this is the point God's making here in verse one of chapter three to uh, Yechezkel. When you've got the total vista and the vision from heaven, you can see how everything is connected to everything else. Where you're down here in the physical world, too close to the action, it's impossible to see the whole picture. So Yechezkel is being told by God in verse 1, even though you don't get everything, in other words, you don't really understand everything, you can't rationalize it, it doesn't, it doesn't um, gel with you, it doesn't jive with your intellect. You've got to consume both what you do understand and what you don't, and you've got to accept it all. Um, and then you've got to go and bring this dark message, which is the message that you don't understand, um, the message of exile, destruction uh, through the generations, as the Possek finishes, verse 1 finishes, then you've got, to, you've got to pass it on, this dark message, even though you don't get it yourself, you've still got to pass it on to the Jewish people. That's verse 1. In verse 2, um, we see Yechezkel opens his mouth, but he opened his mouth, which is certainly a start, but he doesn't actually eat anything. Again, similar similar to the analogy above of the baby opening his mouth but not actually eating. Um, and this might be because he knows what's contained. He knows what's coming next. He knows what he's going to digest. He knows the messages that are coming up, uh, the things that are going to be very difficult to process, both him, for himself and for the Jewish people, as uh, was described when he had a, a, uh, a preliminary look at the Sefer, at the Megillah, at the end of chapter 2, he, all he could see was Kidim Behege uh, He could see uh, uh, anxiety, destruction, the suffering of the righteous, and the success of the wicked in this world. Um, these are things that are very difficult to countenance. Um, and they, they, they really don't uh, come easy to us. And they make us question whether God knows what he's doing. When we see righteous people, good people suffer. When we see evil people prosper. And that's the message, right? That's the message that he's going to be given uh, about the Jewish people over the next hundreds of years. Uh, that's what he's, he's, he's got to digest. He's got to digest the fact that the Jewish people are going to be suffering uh, virtually up until the time of the Mashiach. Um, and it's something that Yechezkel maybe doesn't want to imbibe. Um, He's prepared to open his mouth, but he doesn't want to take it in. Uh, and despite the fact that he trusts God, uh, that eventually the, every dark image that he's told to ingest will, will be shown to be completely and absolutely appropriate, um, even though we can't see it now, and that re- the righteous will receive their world's, their reward in the world to come, and eventually God will make sure that the evil people will suffer for their uh, evil and their wickedness, but... Despite the, this trust that Yechezkel has got in God, uh, actually imbibing this information is a very tough pill to swallow, uh, especially at, uh, as a time um, for much of this destruction and exile will take place during his period of stewardship. And uh, remembering that uh, the destruction of the base of Migdash is only a few years away. And uh, the terrible consequences uh, of that and the fact that 950,000 Jewish people are going to be murdered. And he's going to have to pass these images on to the Jews of his era and the Jews that are living in Babylonia now. 
And he, he, he himself will actually have to witness many righteous people suffer and be killed over the coming period of the Babylonian destruction of Yushalayim. And he'll also see the many wicked individuals in the Babylonian government prosper while they reduce Yerushalayim to a ghost town and destroy the base of Migdosh. So Yechezkel opens his mouth, but it's very reticent. He's very reticent to ingest all the darkness he's going to have to uh, digest. So God, so to speak, has to force feed him. Um, because this, this information is crucial to the mission. Uh, it's crucial to the mission that God has planned for him and planned for the Jewish people. So that's why Yechezkel tells us in verse 2, that God had to, so to speak, force feed him this information. He had to impress it um, physically, or physically, spiritually on Yechezkel, whether Yechezkel wanted to listen or not, whether he wanted to uh, uh, take it in or not. Um, and then we have verse 3. And um, verse 3 is, again, uh, after God has force-fed it to him, forced this information into his mouth, or forced this information into his intellect, into his imagination, probably his imagination, prophecy comes into the imagination rather than in the in, into the intellect. Uh, um, again, God, or uh, the Barbanel says, the angel said to him, Ben Adam, don't just be a passive recipient. Don't just let me force feed this to you. You should fill up your stomach with this. Act, you take an active part. Um, you should uh, not be a passive recipient of this Megillah, of this Torah, and all its different subdivisions. You need to be active in, actively involved in absorbing this. You need to actively make it a part of you. And it and should be entirely consumed by you. Uh, the bits that are easy under, to understand and digest and the parts that are bitter. And so, uh, uh, and not so, the, the bits that, uh, you know, Yechezka really wants to spit out. You know, again, going back to the imagery of the child. So sometimes you've got to, you know, the child's not well. So you put a, you, 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 you put a, some of his medicine in, you crush up a bit of his medicine inside the, uh, the biscuit that you, you're giving to it. So often the baby's not stupid and they'll, you know, he'll, look at the biscuits and realize there's something in there he doesn't want and he'll spit it out. But God says you can't spit it out. You can't digest the good stuff or the stuff that's easy to rationalize and spit out the stuff you don't want. He tells him, eat it, swallow it all up. And fill up your intestines with it. So in, 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 in essence, fill up your mind so that you've got everything on, on board, all the information. And then, finally, in the verse, he, he convinces Yechezkel to eat it. But Ochla says Yechezkel, I did eat it. Once Yechezkel actually actively eats, digests, swallows everything God has fed to him, and he realizes an amazing fact. It's only if you absorb only part of God's message, part of God's Torah, part of God's Hashkocha, or part of your trust in God, that certain parts of the Torah, certain parts of the way God deals with the world can seem to be bitter, can seem to have a, a bad taste, can seem to be unpalatable. But once you ingest it all and come to the real, realization that God is running everything and God knows exactly what he's doing, then those, that bitter taste, those bitter images of destruction, the bitter images of exile, the bitter images of persecution, the bitter images of the suffering of the righteous that Yechezkel is going to see and have to pass on to the Jews in vivid detail, um, there's an acceptance that it, it to, to a certain level, it makes sense and certainly is appropriate in the eternal scheme of God's plan. And then the bitterness turns to Kedvash Lamatot. Um, once you realize, once you come to the realization that I really can't understand why God is doing this. But my trust in God is such that I know he is doing everything appropriately. Everything has got a reason. 
whether it be suffering or reward or whatever it is. Um, then the, if you rationalize that, that idea properly, it's Kidvash Lamatot, the realization that the father, the child realizes that the father, the, the parent uh, really does care about him. And that comes through experience and that comes through trust. Uh, the trust that the parent builds up with it or, or the child builds up, it builds up in the child through a period of time, through a period of immaturity to a state of maturity. And when the child realizes that uh, he's, he can completely and utterly trust, we're not talking about faith here. Don't confuse trust with faith. Faith implies negativity. Faith implies, faith implies doubt. Trust does not imply doubt. Trust implies certainty. And that's what we're supposed to have in God. If you want faith, become a Christian. Uh, they've got faith in Jesus. We don't have faith in God. We have trust in God. There's a completely and utterly different type of, uh, trust is based on previous interactions. We've had a million previous interactions with God. God has always, always made sure the Jewish people have survived. Always. He's always been a, come to the rescue of the Jewish people. So our, our, uh, our, the basis of our relationship with God is a, a relationship of trust rather than a relationship of faith. Faith implies doubt. We don't have any doubt. The Torah implores us, demands of us, you were shown that you would know, not that you would be, not that you would uh, believe, you were shown it, you were shown Mount Sinai so that you would know, not so that you would believe and hope and have faith. That's not the idea. The whole idea is that you, you can trust. You know, and therefore you can trust. You know that God is there. You know that God is giving you the Torah. You know that God is looking out for you. And therefore you can trust it. When that, and that's a very, that's a very, very hard madrega. It's a very, very hard level to get up to, to get to, to a situation where you, your trust in God is so complete that even the visions or the experiences that are bitter, so even experiences that are, are of bereavement, even experiences of of disaster, exile, death, destruction, can appear like kidvash lamatot, can appear like uh, uh, sweet, um, sweet like honey. Um, as the Abarbanel says here, I just, just mentioned the Abarbanel here, and I want to just say, say a couple of words about suffering here as well. Um, the the Abarbanel says, V'oma sha'ochla, v'atihi b'piv kidvash lamatot, that, um, that, um, that, um, uh, Yechezkel says here, I ate it and when I absorbed it, when I rationalize it and I examined my own trust in God, I realized it was kibash lamatok. It was sweet like honey. Lo Um, not that he objected to Taurus Yisrobar also. Elo shahoya hanavua masamei that uh, the the objections to the uh, to the prophecy dissipated. And eventually, when he tasted it, when he when he imbibed the whole lot, ingested the whole lot, and he, so to speak, had a, 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 a human being's glimpse into God's plan, as much as a human being can glance into God's plan. That uh, excited, gave him contentment. Um, he understood that his trust in God was worthwhile. And uh, despite the fact that everything is going to turn dark for a very long period of time, nevertheless, everything is appropriate. Everything God does is appropriate. That uh, God dishes out punishment exactly correctly according to the sins of human beings, and that everything God does is appropriate, and that is Yechezkel's takeaway here. Yechezkel's takeaway: he didn't understand everything, he didn't get to grips with Sadik Varalo, he didn't get to grips with the idea of uh, why Sadikim are, are punished and why they suffer so terribly and why evil people. Evil people uh, prosper. He doesn't. He doesn't get that. But what he does get when he absorbs God's Torah, so to speak, 
and God's information, he gets an overall reinvigorated trust in God. And that that cheers him up. The idea that uh, everything that God's doing um, is appropriate. And Gamzu Lutova, that Rav Nochamish Gamzu said, Gamzu Lutova, people forget that there's a lamad there. That uh, sometimes things happen in our lives and they're excruciating, they're terrible, they're they're, they're bitter and they're they're unexpectedly harsh. Um, But the idea is Gamzu Lutova. It might not seem appropriate now, but in the fullness of time, and when we do get to the point where we can understand God's plan, either when we die or at the point when the Mashiach comes and things are revealed to us in, in, in simple, in simple terms, exactly what the plan was, then Gamzu Lutova, everything that God did, everything that God did throughout the generations, including our generation, um, was for the good. Not good. We, we can't say the Holocaust was good. We can't say the murder of the three million Jewish people, two million Jewish people by the Romans was good. We can't say the Chalmanitsky massacres were good. But what we will be able to say is Gamzu Lutova, that everything that God did uh, in terms of uh, the exile and the uh, destruction that took place throughout Jewish history was Lutova. Similarly, the, that's Rav Nochamish Gamzu's way of explaining it. Um, Rabbi Kiva, who was a Talmud of his, had a very similar expression. Kol man da Ovid Rachmona, le tab Ovid. Everything that God does, le tab Ovid, will eventually be shown to be completely and utterly good, appropriate, right. Um, and uh, again, um, to get to the level of understanding uh, or having that trust in God, that's a very, very high level to get to. And that's the point that uh, Yechezkel has just reached now. When he says at the end of verse three, Kidvash Lamatok. Kidvash Lamatok means that, uh, I've accepted it. I've accepted it sweet as honey. As the Malbit, the Abarbanel says, Masameach Esanobi. He, he was, Simcha is not, uh, the word Simcha is not overt joy. Uh, the Malbim discusses this in several places. Overt joy is Sasan. When you're dancing and singing, Simcha is internal, internal spiritual joy. Um, and there's a huge difference between the two. So, Hesanobi, internally, mentally, intellectually, um, he became uh, the 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 information that was being passed on to him um, cheered him up to the extent that uh, he wasn't cheered up by the the actuality of the events he's going to have to describe to the Jewish people, but he's cheered up about the fact that uh, at the end of day, so to speak. Everything will be called to account and everything will be, um, um, the flag will be raised and um, the end of days will arrive and the Mashiach will come. So um, that's the basis of trust. That's the trust we have in a Kurdish Baruch. So that, that's where we're up to. There's, a, there's a, a, a little bit more to say yet on this, this posuk. Um, but we have, we're just a little bit... Uh, Behind the time, I wanted to finish this third possible, but, uh, and I wanted to say something about Jewish suffering. Um, um, so we'll, we'll have to do, deal with that in Mitz Hashem next, um, next, uh, next week. Has anybody got any questions here? Yeah. So I'm going to stop there. I'll, I'll finish off this, this uh, exposition on the first three chapters with a little insight into suffering and why why it is the Yecheskel here, although that he's, he's being passed across information, uh, that is dire, that is, uh, you know, dark as dark can be about the future. Nevertheless, he's Masamech. He's, um, he matok bin midvash. It's, uh, sweet as honey to him. And, uh, the way we are supposed to deal with, uh, suffering ourselves based on the way, um, based on the way Yechezkel deals with it here. Um, so I'll make a little bit of a mention of that next time. Again, but uh, we're running out of time. So if anybody's got any questions, now's the time to ask. Um, and we'll pick up the story of chapter three. Please, God, next week. Uh, questions? Thanks, Henry. You're all very welcome. No questions. Gee whiz. Welcome back.
Thank you. Okay, guys. Uh, we'll see you next week. Everyone should have a great week. And um, thank you. We'll see you next week. And I'll see. I'll see a lot of you tomorrow morning. Nine thirty, man. Nine thirty. Rob, hi. Don't be late, man. Mark Mace, Stanley Lawfer, Larry Lowenthal. Larry, you got you got your shear after it's eleven tomorrow. Yeah, but they they're doing it on their own now, so we won't need to go to your. Uh, okay, Nat Gordon, don't be late, man. In the morning, nine thirty. David Taylor, I'm watching you, man. Yorkshire, you Yorkshire people, dodgy, dodgy. Nine thirty. Who else is there that I can I can give a clap to? Whoever else comes to my shear on in the morning, nine thirty. Don't be late. Okay. okay. It's been nice spending time with you. Ralph, where have you been at the 9.30 shear? Wake up a bit earlier, man, and come to the shear. Okay. Call to to everybody. Everyone should have a great week. Harry? Yeah. What's the difference between Simcha and Rina? Oh, why do people ask these questions at uh, right Tell, right tell, me, the next, tell me next ah, week. Yeah, ask me next week. Okay. Okay. Okay.